you're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So last week, we saw three things about Jesus Christ. John wanted his readers to know in Jesus, he is first of all our advocate, the one that stands in our place, that comes along our side in a time of need. But then we saw he is the righteous one. He is the righteousness that we do not have, that we need in order to be in relationship with God the Father from now and all eternity. But we also saw that he is our propitiation, that he is the one that satisfied God's righteous anger against all unrighteousness that includes us, And he paid that penalty. He suffered that wrath so we would not have to. And then he brings us God's favor. And then when the people were wrestling with kind of doubts, John did something so strange to me. He takes them to the idea of obedience. And this is what we saw, that in obedience is what it does. It builds a trust and a love that says, God is for me no matter what. Therefore, whatever God asks of me, that is the very best thing for me, following in obedience. And today, we are going to see the greatest threat against this. John's going to show us what we all as Christians need. But I want to begin telling you a true story of a guy named Charles Dutton. Charles Dutton was born in January 30th, 1951, and so he's almost 70 years old. Well, at 16, he got into a knife fight where a man died and he pled guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to five years in prison. Well, two years into that, he's released on parole and it doesn't take long that he is arrested for robbery and firearm charges. Another bad decision. And he's sentenced to three years. While in prison, it gets worse and he gets in fight with a guard And he has eight years added to his sentence. Several months into that sentence, he is then sent to uh, consolidary confinement. And prisoners were allowed to take one book with them. And by mistake, he picks up a book on playwrights. How to write plays. I know it sounds intriguing, but it was by mistake. He said, sitting in this place all alone, the only book I have, I begin reading it. And he said when he began reading this book, he was overwhelmed by it. He was moved by it. He enjoyed it so much. When he got out, he went to the warden. And he asked the warden if he could start a drama group of all things. And the warden said on one condition, get your GED. So he agreed to that, but not only did he do that, but he also got his associate's degree in 1976. And in that year, on August 20th, he is paroled. After prison, he earns a drama uh, major from Townsend State University, where he earned a bachelor's degree. He then gets his master's degree in acting from Yale School of Drama in 1983. The next year, he lands his first role on a Broadway play. And in that performance, his very first one, he is nominated for a Tony Award for the Best Actor. In his very first show. But you probably know him best from the uh, 1990s movie, Rudy. His name was Fortune. 
He was the groundskeeper of Notre Dame. He's the one that left the key so Rudy would have a place to sleep. And it's that iconic scene where Rudy's ready to quit. Finds him and he says, what are you doing here? And he says, I quit, it's too much. He looks at Rudy and he says, what are you talking about? He says, well, it's just not worth it anymore. And he says, not worth it. He says, you're five foot nothing, a hundred nothing pounds with just a speck of talent. But for two years, you've gone up against the very best football team in the nation. And you're going to walk away with a degree from Notre Dame. Well, later on, he's asked about his success. And how in the world do you go from being in prison to being a Broadway star? And this is what he said. He said, unlike the other prisoners, I never decorated my cell. I never decorated my cell because I wanted to be reminded every day this place was temporary. He never saw his cell as his permanent home. So like last week, John wants to begin with a word of encouragement. So look again at verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you little children. And this is meant for everyone that is hearing this letter read in these churches. And this word little children, it's a term of endearment. He wants to know, I love you. I care for you. I want the best for you. He sees them as uh, as the children that he is raising Through his teaching and guidance. And notice what he says. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So the first and and most foundational word of encouragement John could give these readers. Is that your past sins are forgiven. And that forgiveness is still in effect today. And always will be. He wants them to know that the foundational word of encouragement is your sins are forgiven But here's John's point also. Christians, believers, we are not forgiven because of anything in us. We're not forgiven because of something that we do. We're not forgiven because we deserve it. We're not forgiven because we're just a little bit better than other people because I've never landed myself in prison. We are forgiven because of Jesus Christ for His name's sake. That we are forgiven because God shows us mercy in Jesus. And then he wants us to know this is true of all believers. That we are forgiven. That forgiveness is still in effect and always will be because of Jesus' name. Well, then John is going to address three different groups. And we need to set the stage for this. If you look down over the next few verses, he's going to talk to people as children, young men, and young women. And he'll call some fathers. So the debate then is, what is he, who is he talking to? What is he talking about? And some take this to mean kind of the stages of life. There's little children. We've got some in here. There's young men and women. And then there's the older, the fathers and the mothers. Or some believe it could be like positions in a church. Well, I think he is talking not about those two, but he's talking about the different stages that a believer goes through. It's kind of stages of spiritual growth. Children, you'll see it in verse 12. This is a different word than what we just read in verse 12. Little children. It's the word children, which means a young child. I think he is talking about believers that are new in their journey. 
They're people that are young in their faith. Then young men in verses 13 and 14, the men and women are like the, we would call them maybe teenagers. These are people that have believers, they're growing. They're on the process to maturing. And then fathers in verse 13 and 14, men and women. These are older believers, believers that are spiritually mature. And John has a word of encouragement for all three of these groups. Because look at verse 13. He's going to begin with the oldest. He says, to the fathers, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. So he says, fathers, those that are mature, you know him who is from the beginning. You know Jesus, not just a bunch of facts. You know and have experienced him. And he encouraged them that they are mature in their knowing. But I'm also writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Those that are maturing. The encouragement is you have overcome the evil one. And what is he talking about? Well, the closest context we would have is that they didn't fall into the false teaching. One is they haven't abandoned the gospel. They weren't lured away from the church. And in that, they've overcome the evil one. But I write to you children. Because you also, you know the Father. Even though you are young in your faith, you have fellowship with the Father that is unbreakable. Well, then he circles back around. Look at verse 14. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So John repeats himself. And when you have written word, that's how you show emphasis. That's how you drive your point home. You repeat it again. And he wants to encourage them. You know him. You have experienced him. But once again to the young men. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So notice John mentions three things here. Previously said, you have overcome the evil one. So what he's going to do, he's going to add something to this so that they understand. The reason that they overcome the evil one, it's not because they're really, really strong in themselves. They have overcome the evil one because of what he says in the middle, because God's word abides in them. Therefore, because of that, you are strong because you have now overcome the evil one. So he's saying that the strength to overcome the evil one is nothing in yourself. It's not in your own power. It's because the word of God abides in you. What John is saying, that the weapon for believers is not that you can outthink. It's not that we can outwit the evil one or Satan. He says the weapon is the Word of God. Because the more our minds become saturated with Scripture, the more we will love God, the more we will experience His daily presence in our lives, and the more equipped we are to stand strong and overcome the evil one. Listen how Daniel Allen says it. He says, Knowledge of the Word of God, it takes the fangs out of the serpent, the devil. It takes the teeth out of the roaring lion, the devil. Who walks about seeking to devour us. And so John wants to encourage all those that are there. No matter where they are on their spiritual journey. To the children, those that are young in faith. You know him. And you're in fellowship with him. 
And that is unbreakable. He wants them to know children, those that are young in faith that are just beginning, God is for you. Maybe those that are a little older in their faith. Maybe you're maturing. He says God's word is taking root in your heart. And through it you will overcome the evil. And you are strong in that. And God is for you. To those that are older, more mature in their faith, You know God in a special way because you've experienced Him year after year in incredible, mighty ways. And through this, you have a knowledge of Jesus Christ that builds a trust and assurance that I am for you. So after the encouragement comes a very, very strong word of warning. He's going to tell them and tell us to be careful what you love. Just look at verse 15. It says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he simply says, do not love the world or the things of it. And he's going to talk about why. But first of all, let's talk about that word love. What is he meaning? We use this word a lot. It's a word that's very familiar to us. We use it in a lot of different contexts. We see it in a variety of ways, but... Think of the heart of it as this. Love begins with a desire. But then love really becomes something when there is desire. And every desire that you and I have, it will require a commitment of time and resources. No matter what it is, there's a desire and it becomes love. It will require a a commitment of time and resources. Whether it's a friendship. Life groups are starting a great opportunity to meet people. But you know what? It's going to take a commitment of time and resources. Marriage. We all know that if you're married. Love. There's this desire. And it requires commitment of time and resources. But it could be anything. The church. Soap carving. Rock balancing. Farmville. No matter what it is. The desire. It's love. And it will require a commitment of time and resources. And so John says, notice he doesn't say don't love. John says don't love the world or the things in it. But then I go, hold on, John. Going back to those early years, young in the faith, one of the first verses I ever memorized was John 3, 16. And what does it begin saying that God loves? For God so loved the world. Wait, hold on. God says he loved the world, but I'm not supposed to love the world. Well, it's because of the different uses of of this word world. And you see it all throughout scripture. In John 3.16 and 1 John uh, chapter 2 verse 2 that we saw last time. He's talking about people. Talking about the people of the world. And we are supposed to love people. And God says he does. But in 1 John 3.17 and John 1.10. World is used as kind of the created, um, the created universe. God is a sovereign creator. Your kids are going to learn that. as a sovereign creator. Of all of it. It's his creation. But here, and also in like John 16, 11, it refers to kind of the evil earthly system that Satan is now controlling. And so John is warning, be careful, do not love, don't have a desire that will require a commitment of time and resources to the things that Satan controls and uses to lead people astray. But here's the key. Notice John is warning 
not just those that are young in faith. He's not warning just those that are maturing. He's not even just focusing on those that are uh, mature in their faith. Everyone in this is getting the exact same warning. So no matter how far advanced someone might be, this is something that all Christians need to be aware of. In fact, Paul was aware of it in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So the thing is, is that we are all in danger of following in love with the world and the system and the values that are trying to exclude God no matter how long we've been a believer. He says, Be careful always what you love. And he is going to give three very specific Details And he's going to list three desires in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, you can sum all the world up into three desires. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. None of this is from the Father, but this is from the world. So it begins with desires of the flesh. These are those Things you would put into this bucket that are the, uh, the self-generated kind of things. This comes from the internal sinful tendencies that we all have. And if you can figure out how to get rid of them, first of all, show me, and we will become billionaires. Okay? Because all of us, we always have them. We want to figure all of this out. It's things like... I think you could put anything that would be a desire that starts and ends with me. I want to be in control. Self-ambitions. Self-serving. The me, myself, and I. You know, it's my possessions and, and my uh, comfort and my money and my future, my career, my hopes. And we become the focus. It's the me monster. The desires of the flesh. We all have these even after we are saved. And these are the things, these lusts, these desires of the flesh, these are things that you need no help with. They come from our very own sinful hearts. This isn't some influence that comes from outside us. This starts with our own sinful hearts, and everyone battles this. But then he mentions another one, desires of the eyes. This is any kind of strong desire. It comes from what we see. But notice, our eyes are not evil. Our eyes are gifts from God to enjoy, but can be used as a means by which sinful desires are introduced for us. I think you could put things like envy, um, covetousness, greed, entitlement. Because here's a test for me. I said earlier, man, when something's great happening in someone's life, man, we want to celebrate that. And I think we would say that but it isn't really hard when somebody gets a blessing that we wish we had or something we wish we had or things are working out when nothing else is working out in me and we cannot celebrate when something good happens in someone else's life. And then I saw this picture this week. This young woman is getting crowned homecoming queen and look at the excitement of the girl behind her. Man, she is just elated that she has been awarded this. But so much for us, it's an envy and covetousness and greed and autonomy. And it goes like this. We see something. We want it. 
And I'm entitled to it. I see it. I want it. I deserve it. I see it. I want it. It'll make me happy. I see it. I want it. It'll bring fulfillment. He says, be careful. The lust of the eyes. You know what this comes from? It comes from all the world around us. So not only do we have a problem on the inside of our own sinful hearts, we have it in the world around us. But then he mentions a third thing. The pride of life. Boasting about what we have or what we have done. It's, look at me. Man, look at what I've achieved. Look at what I have. Look at what I've done. We could throw in things like pride. Arrogance. We neglect others. Takes credit. And John is saying that everyone, no matter whether you're a brand new believer, you're just journey or just beginning the journey, you're maturing or you're maturing your faith, everyone is in danger of these no matter how long you've been a believer. But notice what John says about all of these. These are not from the Father, but from the world. That these are the weapons that Satan uses and I'm beginning to think it may be the only weapons he has because let me show you a way he was successful and then one way he wasn't all of these I think all of these are to get us to ask one question is God really for me because I see that and I want it if he's really for me he would sure want me to have it or have this desire that wells up within me and man, God's given me these desires doesn't he want me to be happy in them well, in Genesis chapter 3, it begins by talking about Satan. It says that he is more crafty. He goes to Eve and he says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And Eve responds, We may eat of any fruit in the garden, but not of that tree. And Satan is getting her to ask one question. Is God really for me? Satan gets her to think, is God, maybe he's really holding out on you. And Satan says this. Satan is looking at her, I think, and getting her to think, is God holding out on you? Because if, if you do, if you really took this, you know what will happen to you, Eve? Your eyes, they'll be opened. And Satan gets her to question God's goodness, his direction, his plan, and his care for her. Because in verse 6, this is how it reads. So that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And you see, it's the same three things. There's desire of the flesh. She wants to be in control of her own destiny. She has desired to make this about her. It's what she wants. There's also a desire of the eyes. It says she looks at the fruit. And what does it say? It was a delight to her eyes. She saw it. She wanted it. She was entitled to it. There's also pride of life. She saw something. She wanted it. And what does she do? She gives it to Adam. That I'm in control of what is going on. And Satan uses the same three things that John warns us about. And he was successful. But not always. In Matthew chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out to the wilderness. Where he fasts for 40 
days and 40 nights. And all of a sudden, Satan shows up when he's good and hungry. And there is this natural desire. And Satan is going to try to use that to capitalize on it. So he notice he's going to use the same three weapons. In verse 3, it says, The tempter, Satan, came and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So there's a very natural desire within him. He is hungry. But Satan is offering to fulfill that desire. And in this, Christ is tempted to satisfy this desire of the flesh in a way that the Father had not sanctioned. But Christ responds. But he answered, it is written, man shall not eat by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. And what does he use as the weapon or defense? The word of God. But in verse 5, there's desire of the eyes. Then the devil took, to, took him to the holy city and he set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command the angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Look at it. You want it. You're entitled to it. But once again, Jesus responds with Scripture. Verse 7, Jesus said to him again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. And so Satan pulls out one more trick. The pride of life. Verse 8 Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. They will be yours. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. The pride of possessions and accomplishment. You can have all of this. But Jesus responds victoriously in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, go or be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So Satan uses the same three temptations. One way he was successful, and one way he failed. But then John reminds everyone of one more important truth. In verse 17, And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Because I think we are all tempted to find satisfaction and fulfillment and and joy and purpose. We are all tempted to find these things in the world. And, And John says the truth is this world, it is passing away along with its desires. And we need to constantly remind ourselves that this world is not our home. Yes, we are here for a purpose and a destiny that God has ordained, but this world is not our home. We need to remind ourselves of the things that we are loving and committing time and resources to. Outside of God's will, those will never bring ultimate fulfillment. But John tells us that a person whose life is shaped by obedience to God will not be affected by the passing away of the world, and he says it's vain desire. Because listen to the words of Daniel Aiken. When compared with a life lived in the will of God, the things this life has to offer are really empty imitations of God's best. So the things this world, man, they seem to be of great value, 
He says, are worthless when compared to the eternal blessings that come along from following God. So let me give us just a few things to think about before we take communion together. I think one is, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, maybe you've yet to start it. We pray today is the day. Repent of your sins. Reach out to God to save you. Or maybe you're new. You would be like the child. Or you're young. You're maturing. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time and you're more in that mature category. We all need to be reminded of this. That all temptations are always to get us to ask the question, is God really for me? Is his plan best? Does he really have my best interest? If I want that, am I going to trust his will in that? Because Satan will use anything he can to get you to question that God is really for you. But also, be careful what you love. No matter how long you've been a Christian, this is something we are all in danger of. And we need to be warned of Satan's weapons. It's a desire of the flesh, it's either a desire of the eyes, or it's a pride of life. And John warns us all about that. Be careful not to love the world or the things of it. Because he knows it will always leave you disappointed. But another thing is this. There are really only two ways to kind of rid our heart of a love of the world. And only one works. One thing you can do is you can try really hard to just constantly kind of convince yourself um, to talk yourself into it, uh, to lay out before you the, all the world has, everything in it. It's always unsatisfying. And you can try with all that your might to convince yourself of that. And I think that'll work, but only for a season. Because going back to what John warned us of, we are still sinful. We're stuck in these sinful bodies for a while. And eventually, it will not work. The willpower will eventually run out. But the other way, the only way for this to work is to lay our hearts, our sinful hearts, before God himself, who is worth so much more and worthy of our love. And so, in fact, I think the only solution is our hearts are never going to give up on its love affair of the world, including mine until it finds a greater love in something else. So the only way to rid our hearts of an old love is to give them a more explosive, a new, a better love. And you know how that happens? John tells us over and over, it begins by repentance and faith. Beginning that journey, becoming that young child. And then it begins happening the more his word abides in us because we will love him more we will value what he values more we will begin seeing him show up in different ways and we will have all the defense that we need against Satan's attacks but here's the last thought I want to remind us and I think myself included we always need to be reminded of this that this world is not my home when I find myself getting the most frustrated by the things I see on the news or I find myself being disappointed once again in something I thought was going to work out or whatever it might be, 
It's so helpful to remind myself that this world is not my home. And you know what? It is passing away. So I think Richard Dutton, he was right. That we need to be reminded that this is only temporary. That we need to be reminded of, hey, stop trying to decorate your cell. And the only thing that really worked for him was a mistake of picking up the wrong book. And John reminds us that no matter where we are in our journey, maybe we're just starting. And I pray if no one's done that, today would be the day. Or maybe you've began and, and, and you're beginning to grow. Or maybe you're in that maturing process. Or maybe you're a mature believer. But always and forever, never quit. Man, you might fight, think you're five foot nothing, weigh 100 pounds nothing with just a speck of talent. But don't quit. Because in the end, it will always be worth it. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.